kind of give us the Wisconsin story, your Wisconsin story. Right. So after I got hooked up with David Bowie for a short period, I, I had kept in touch with Tony Visconti, who was producing Blackstar. And so I felt confident enough to talk to Tony and ask him for, you know, like recommendations on producing, if he would do it. He actually said that he would produce some of the stuff that I'm doing. But he also mentioned he was really busy, and so he recommended Gary Tannen, and I got a hold of Gary. Welcome to the Wisconsin Music Podcast. Here to introduce you to the great musicians and music businesses and organizations of Wisconsin. Every week, Wisconsin Music Podcast will be bringing you great information on what's happening in the Wisconsin music world. For our music-loving listeners, we'll bring you music that you haven't even heard of yet from unique and talented artists and hear about their journey so far. You'll either hear live performances of their songs or songs from their selected discography. For our musicians out there wondering what they can do to further their recognition, we'll be calling upon Wisconsin music businesses and organizations to enlighten you on what they're doing to help further your music journey. And now, here's your host, Zach. Thanks, Dean. Welcome, everyone, to Episode 3 of Wisconsin Music Podcast. Today's guest is singer-songwriter and master keyboardist-slash-pianist Jack Spann. Jack has worked with some big names in the music business, most notably David Bowie, who Spann spent time with working on Bowie's Black Star release. Aside from a sought-after musician in the studio and on stage, Jack has also logged time performing on Broadway, including Hank Williams' Lost Highway and War Horse. And I was also performed at South by Southwest and Milwaukee's own Summerfest. Jack's original songs are soaked in blues, country, and rock that are simultaneously thought-provoking yet wildly entertaining. His new release, Propaganda Man, is now on most major platforms, and the physical release was released on July 26 of 2019. Going back to 2017, his release, Beautiful Man from Mars, is a tribute to his time spent with Bowie and was met with critical acclaim, earning him a headlining spot at Summerfest. He is known for his impossible fast hands on the keyboard. He is a storytelling songsmith with a warm vocal tone that perfectly balances out the ferocious piano playing, reminiscent of Fats Waller, Ray Charles, and Jerry Lee Lewis. In our interview today, Jack will touch on his growing up in St. Louis. Yeah, Jack is not a Wisconsinite, but he is a Midwesterner, and he has ties to Wisconsin with our own Gary Tannen of Daystorm Music. Gary has worked with Jack in producing and mastering his last two albums. And we're also going to listen to his newest release, his newest single, called Jesus of New Orleans. So we'll listen to that later. But let's first start off talking to Jack about his early beginnings and go from there. I'll talk to you guys on the other side of the interview. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, Jack. Let's talk about your early beginnings. What instruments did you start with? Oh, my God. Thank you for asking me this question. No one's ever sure. asked me that before. Yeah. So my, my parents, my, actually my mother, like, inherited a piano from one of her aunts. It was, like, one of those old-fashioned, like, upright pianos that you know, smelled like wood and, like, 50-year-old smells. <laughs> and, you know, I just started playing it. Um, and, uh, you know, my my... my Karen's house was about two or three blocks from the Mississippi River, so everything smelled like, you know, like the Mississippi, right? Like, yeah, so like water and dirt. And 
water and dirt and rot and, you know, old dust and the blues and jazz and, you know, like when I was a, a kid, there was like a cruise, it wasn't a cruise line, but a boat that would run up and down the river like every like, you know, three to four hours. And it was really popular. It was called the Admiral. The boat would go down the river and there would be this organist like performing like on the deck. You know, okay. Playing playing a calliope. Cool. And it was like all the kids in the, in the neighborhood would like run down to the river, right, to see those all summer long at like 3 p.m. And like what year or what decade are we talking about here? So I was born in 1960. So this would have been 1968, So you started playing piano. Did you also play in like the school band or anything or was it just an outside thing i i played in the school band um i played when i was we didn't have a band when i was in elementary school um and i went to catholic schools like which were even less likely to have a band i think um but i played piano for like church services and you know, choir practice, and that, that was always something I did. It was, like, the only thing that I could do. So you're saying your formative your formative years of playing piano were in the church, so you're playing gospel music, or was it more of the traditional? No, my, my, my formative years were in the church. Okay. And then high school, what were you doing in high school, music-wise? Um, so so, so I, I left the Catholic high school in my sophomore year, and because my father lost his business and he couldn't afford to send us kids there anymore. <laughs> and went to the public school where they actually had a band. So at that public school, I actually managed to pick up French horn, but they had a French horn like in the horn section closet. You know? <laughs> like, so okay. I was like, Oh, I'll try to do that. Um, and it's helped. So it's like, you know, the if, if you, and I, I know that you're a musician too, so you get this, but if you understand the French horn fingering, it's kind of like a complex version of trumpet and right. like other brass instruments, you know, like they're similar. It's yeah. fun. To, yeah. It's fun to just hold the French horn. Like it's the only instrument that you like hug against your stomach you know, like, while you're playing it. That and is that's true. okay. That is true. You know? <laughs> and then in high school, did you just play French horn or did you also do piano as well? Do both of them? Um, I, I played piano and French horns in high school. Okay. And also was involved with a lot of theater, which led me to actually move to New York at some point in my life and get cast in a Broadway show and a couple of really great off-Broadway shows. That makes sense because listening to your music, is it? it is not, I hear a lot of influence of like Broadway and musicals, the way you structure some of your songs. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. I don't want to say like, like the bad part of Broadway because there's plenty of that going around, you know, like, yeah, but, but yeah, I, I, I appreciate that remark and, you know, that kind of criticism from you because I, I try to tell stories in my songs. Yeah, definitely. I can hear that. Like that, that's my passion for music. I just want to tell stories. I don't care about like being famous, you know, like, Right. For people thinking I'm right. cool or, you know, like, 
all I want to do is, like, I get these weird ideas. I'll wake up in the middle of the night and be like, oh, I got to write that down. And I do. And then the next day I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> you woke up last night. You may as well write a song about it. Like, right, right. Otherwise, you're well, wasting my my insomnia time. <laughs> and I think a lot of musicians out there do that. They If they don't write it down, then they're going to lose it and they don't want to do that. So the smart ones make sure they have at least an idea or an outline of, of that thought. Yeah, yeah, Zach. I, I mean, I have, I've written a lot of songs. I've lost more ideas from not like properly like documenting them than I've written. Right. Like probably, you know, like five times as many ideas, you know, and it, it's hard, like when you're, you know, working a job and dealing with, you know, the whole fuck that world. Right. And exactly. you get these great ideas and then it's hard to like find time to just, you know, take five or ten minutes and say, fuck you world, I'm going to write this wonderful song. Not that I've ever written any wonderful songs, but well, you know what I mean. That, yeah, I, I know what you're saying, but, you know, there are people out there that do feel that, you know, the songs that you've written, you know, at least the ones they really like, they think are, you know, excellent songs. I, I like I like a few of them, you know, like... I mean, I would have to I mean, say, like, every once in a while I get chills from listening to my own music, but I get chills from listening to anyone's music, really. Yeah, I, I do the same thing. I listen back to the, the album that I re- that I did with my family, like, 15 years ago. So we talked about um, where you grew up, which was in St. Louis, right? St. Louis. Right. And are you the only one in your immediate family that's a musician? My sister Joni is also a like multi multi instrumentalist and okay. singer and a songwriter. She lives in California, um, but yeah, her and I are the only ones. And then we talked about your school, you know, school band. Were you in like? Did they have a jazz band or anything that you played in besides theater? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely Zach. Like, I joined every band that I could. Like, um, staying after school to a company for, like, the Glee Club or, like, the Girls' Choir, volunteering to play the organ for uh, the senior recital or the, or the senior commencement, you know, like, playing pop and circumstance. Yeah, so for graduation and stuff like that. Cool. Yeah, man. I, I mean, I was just, like, a kid, and I just wanted to play, and I did everything that I possibly could. And that's what you need to do if that's, you know, if that's your passion, then you have to make sure you try to do every possible chance you can to play is to go out there and play. Yeah, I mean, I've met, I've met a lot of, like, people that wanted to major in music in college or major in theater, you know, or whatever. Yeah. And their parent, their, their, their parents always urge them to, like, major in, <laughs> like, marketing and take a minor in theater. Yeah. Or, and I don't think that's the way to go. Like, if you're really into something, I think you should just do it, like, flat out, like, as much as you possibly can. And especially when you're young, like, nothing can stop you, you know? Yeah, because you mean, don't... I guess you can get killed or, you know, like... Well, yeah. Get sick or something, but... But that's out of your control. I, I just want to urge, like people that are younger than me to like go for it like whatever it is well yeah you're only young once and then you could do all the adulting later yeah <laughs> yeah if you don't have anything holding you back then you know see what happens so what are you holding us back like you know poverty well, like discrimination I think racism there's a whole bunch of different things out there that can hold you back it's just can you push through that you know is your desire or your passion enough to get you to where you want to be right 
And if you have the talent and you're able to capitalize on your talent and improve your talent. Yeah, I see that. No, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, is that kind of like what your mindset was? Is like, was your passion so strong that you were blinded by things that you, now that you look back at it, could have held you back? Or or kind of give us an idea of how, what drove you to get you to New York, basically? Oh, oh, Jack, I, I can answer that question easily. Like, Okay. So I suffered from depression and anxiety, like right before like the world discovered like what depression and anxiety was, right? Like when I was 23 years old, I like had a panic attack that basically curtailed my life for like three months. I don't know. Like, and I think that that's like a universal condition. You know, I think most people go through something like that, or at least, you know, one third of people, one third of them right. are too too happy to understand it, and the other one third are doing something else. But mm-hmm. but yeah, so um, the way I approach my music is like I think it's like tempered by the fact that it, it's hard to be a person, <laughs> like no matter what ethnic group you are, you know, like how rich you are, like how poor you are, we all share that. It's like. Maybe that's what they mean by original sin. <laughs> you should write a song about it unless you already did. Oh, maybe I will. So you, you were going through some depression in your early 20s. And then what what made you decide to go to New York? Well, I, I basically done everything I could in St. Louis. And I started like trying to get gigs. And like because I had a degree in music, like I could apply to different theaters in, you know, Iowa, Chicago, Wisconsin, okay. Michigan. So, right. So you have a degree in music. Where did you get your degree? From Webster University in St. Louis. What kind of degree is it? Performance or? I always laugh at this, but it's a BM. Yeah. It's I a Bachelor of Music. So what does that allow you to do with that degree? Basically to like go out into the world and, you know, try to get gigs playing the piano. Oh, all right, so, so let, me, let me say, like, getting that degree, I, I, I made, like, a valuable contact, right? Like, that that helped me to, like, kind of, like, push everything along, like, and then, you know, it's like I said a moment ago, like, I had no backup plan at all. Yeah. So, you have your degree, you did everything you could in St. Louis, so you headed out to New York, that was the next step? Well, well I moved to San Francisco for a year and a half. Okay. Um, so what did you do in San Francisco? I went to the I-Beam. I saw the Dead Kennedys. Um, <laughs> so you, were you making contacts out there? I, I was trying to, but okay. I was kind of, there's kind of some things I was doing that are illegal that I can't really talk about. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so then I, I, I actually lived all over the country. I was like in I worked in Sarasota, Florida for six months, and I call that living there. I was in Akron for six months. Akron is like where the world headquarters of um, Goodyear, but it's like, you know, 70 miles south of Cleveland. So you're going all over the country, living in different parts, soaking up different experiences, meeting different people, and then you eventually land in New York? Is that? Yes. When I was uh, 38, I decided, like, I have to go to New York. And so I did. So, and so you, so from twenty three to thirty eight, you're traveling all over the country. Yep. Okay. And so that's fifteen years. So in those fifteen years, 
all you were doing was just traveling, playing music, getting connections, and yeah, how okay, bizarre! Cool. But that's kind of what I was doing. And were you married by the time you got to New York, or did you get married after New York? Or no, my my girlfriend at the time moved here with me, and we've now been married for a long time since 2018 years at age of 38 so what year was that that you moved to new york then 1999 or 2000 so you get to new york so what's the first thing but we were we were going back and forth yeah i i think the first time i went there was in 1998 and i immediately got this gig like Music directing the show in Nyack. And where is that? Uh, Nyack is like the fancy suburb that's directly north of New York City, over the Hudson River and the, the Cuomo Ridge. So you said you were going back and forth, back and forth between New York and St. Louis? St. Louis, Iowa, okay. so Illinois. You just, so you're just bouncing back and forth all over the place. Right. I, I was lucky enough to have like some actual gigs at like theaters either acting or playing an instrument or music directing. Like I inhabited, so there's like, there used to be, and they're not doing them now, like because of COVID, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And like every region of the country, like they would have like theater auditions, right? Like where you could apply and get a chance to audition and maybe get a gig, right? Like, and then like 1990, if you could get a gig somewhere for like 10 weeks, you would get one year of health insurance free from acclimating. Yeah. So that's, that's, you know, between the people that wanted insurance, like the old people and, you know, the younger people like me who just wanted to be like, you know, like in a, in a show somehow. Yeah. When did you finally live in New York without bouncing around doing theater gigs not bouncing around um we my my wife and i have landed here in kind of upstate new york it's about 70 miles north of the city so my wife andy and i moved to new york city permanently in 1999 and i started getting gigs playing piano and you know like piano bars like so most of these places in fact Pretty much all of them were like kind of like half gay, half straight bars, you know, where all the waiters and the bartenders sang. <laughs> like everybody, like had a had a fantastic musical theater voice, you know. Yeah. Like, but they also had to have a gig, a, a job to support where they live. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and you know, it's like one thing I have learned after thirty years of playing in nightclubs, like when people get drunk. They're really easy to like, exploit and to like get their money, right? Like, <laughs> yep. So, so anyway, so yeah, it was, you know, there were times when I like came home from gigs with like a wad of chips so fat it wouldn't really fit into my pocket, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. And for I'd you. Be like, man, but I was never one of the top players. I mean, there were a few people that I knew well, you know? Yeah. So you're in New York in 1999, you're doing these bar gigs, getting tips, and I take it you're not doing that anymore, or are you still doing that? No, no actually, I'll explain that later, but so okay. after 1999, and I was, I was actually still traveling, like in, weird story, uh, 9-11, 
September 9th. Okay, two days before. So I was actually working at, I think it's called the Royal Oaks Theater in um, Royal Oaks, Michigan. It's it's like this, it's, a, it's a, like a, a theater at some state college or state university that's in a really like affluent neighborhood. That was 2001. September 11th happened, and I was like, oh, fuck, you know, like... You were in Michigan when September 11th hit. Yeah, I was. I remember waking up at like eight o'clock and turning on the news and seeing, you know, like, oh fuck, you know, like, You're right. And and the the horrible thing is, like, my wife was working in Soho at the time, like, and she has like, oh wow, so she, yeah, she has photos of the whole. Like, she worked on the 17th floor of a building in Soho, which is a couple of miles north of you know, where the Twin Towers used to be. Right. And, like, she went to work that morning, and while she was on the subway, like, people were, like, saying, oh, this thing happened. You know, like, nobody knows what it is. Yeah. She actually, she went into, she had the, like, foresight to go into a drugstore and buy, like, a disposable camera, right? Like, okay. she has, like, photos, like, there's a series of, like, 17 photos of the towers falling down, like taken from her office on the 17th floor, you know, like, wow. Um, so yeah. <laughs> and then she had to like walk home like seven miles, like, cause we lived in Queens then. Okay. So, so she had to like truck home from her office in Soho to Queens, you know, with thousands of other people. Like, yeah, that's, that's a cheerful thought. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but you know, everybody has their, where where were you when nine eleven happened and that's yours? I would say I was teaching. I at that time I was teaching five middle schools a day, so I would teach one class at one middle school, then I would go to the next one, go to the next one, go to the next one, and I didn't even know what was happening until I walked into one of the schools because I was so sick of listening to the radio. I just had a CD playing, and so I wouldn't hear any news or anything. I was just you know whatever, so. I was just driving around, didn't know what was going on until I got to my next school. So that, that's where I was. Yeah, and um, I think it's really funny that people all over the country were, like, shutting stuff down. Like, <laughs> like oh, Al-Qaeda maybe like, about to attack our movie theater. or <laughs> well, I think nobody knew what was going on. I mean, you don't hear airplanes for a couple days. You, you know, it was like, it was just a weird, eerie feeling. Like, you know. Like living in New York, and um, so I was gone on nine eleven. My wife took a train to see me <laughs> and oh, hang okay. out with me for a few days in in Michigan. Yeah, she took the Amtrak. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I I still like can't believe like how it happened. But you know, there were no planes flying and people right. traveling, and she was like, "I have to go see my husband, or I have to get well, yeah. out of New York." You know, like exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> So after 9-11 happened and you guys got back to New York, then kind of tell us where your career was kind of heading. Yeah. I started going to some theater auditions, trying to, like, meet musicians on Craigslist. I finally got a chance to be in this off-brother musical called Lost Highway, and it was about Hank Williams. Okay. And so, so I did that. And I played bass. Um, I wasn't like the original person who created the role, but it, you know, I 
took over for him. And, okay. And then a couple of years later, I got a chance to audition for the Broadway musical War Horse at Lincoln Center. And <laughs> for a poor kid from St. Louis, Lincoln right. Center was like, you know, <laughs> epitome of like, oh, yeah, you got a good, great gig. And yeah, so, um, so I auditioned for that and I got that gig. Um, and that lasted from 2011 to 2013. And then in 2014, I, uh, got a chance to meet David Bowie and play on a bunch of demos for him when he was starting recording for Blackstar. What led up to meeting David Bowie? How did you get to that point? Um, I, I had like put some demos online and one of my friends who I, I can't really talk about them, like, because they're, they're kind of like anonymous, you know, people that hook people up. I don't know how to explain it, but no, I, I totally understand what you're saying. Th- this person introduced me to Tony Visconti, who okay. was working with David at the time. Um, you know, to get, to get his next recordings out. He wasn't sure if it was going to be an album, tour. He actually asked me, so here's three things that happened. Number one, at, at one point, he was like, Jack, go in there and play something. And just, like, I, you know, because he had recorded like some kind of like little demo thing, not a little demo thing, but something, you know, eight to 12 bars or 16 bars of chords. And I was like, okay, okay dude, <laughs> like, sure. I'd love to do that. So I went into the room uh, at Electric Ladyland Studios and did a little piano stuff. And when I walked out, David actually stood up and <laughs> clapped. <laughs> Good awesome. Awesome. I think some of the other people in the room were uncomfortable because it really wasn't that great. But I think he was nurturing, you know, like, so, okay, so that happened. Okay. And then it's kind of, I don't know if I should say this, actually, but David Bowie told me to fuck off. <laughs> Why did he do that? Before I say that, David asked me to go on tour with him. And I, I'm pretty sure he was serious, you know, like, but I guess at that time before his illness and his death, like he was playing on a tour and was looking for like, you know, people that could play his music and right, whatever. So like the fourth day, like they, I only got hired for like a half day on the fourth day. So after hanging out with him for a few days, like, and it was time to leave. It was around lunchtime and I was like, oh, I'm getting all my stuff. And then I like, Walked over to him. He was sitting by the door, and I was like, "Oh, David. Oh, Mr. Bowie. Whatever." <laughs> yeah. So I said, "David, I'm so glad to have met you and played with you. I've loved you all of my, you know, life." And David was like, "Fuck off, Jack." <laughs> okay. It was because he, from my interpretation of his personality from only a few days of like hanging out with him. Like he was like, not, he, he was like, I'm not a star, you know, I'm not like better than you. And, but I am better than you. So I can tell you to fuck off. <laughs> like just shut okay. up and relax. Like you don't have to like worship me. Like I'm David Bowie. I understand. But on the other hand, he just wants to be treated as a normal person as much as possible. Yeah. 
Yeah, we watched a bunch of videos together. Um, there were there was downtime in the studio, so yeah. I mean, I I know there are many people that know him way better than I do, <laughs> but that is it's like you know for a kid from the Midwest, like he's been a he's been a star since what the sixties. He's been in the limelight. Sixties, I guess. Yeah. So that's his whole his whole life has been kind of like. Fans have been worshiping him since then. Well, and with good reason. Yeah, there's things that he has done that that changed how music is performed or recorded. He's a pioneer in, in certain areas of the music field. That, yeah, you know, people, not even, and that's true, a pioneer and also a prophet. In what way do you think? Well, I, you know, I think his kind of overt sexuality was like a precursor to gay rights and. So he was like one of those that like, brought it more to the f- forefront, is what you're saying. Yeah, and more to the forefront. And for people like me, you know, who you know, didn't live in like a major kind of like metropolitan bubble. Yeah. He was he was a godsend. Like he was a breath of fresh air. Like, you know, like I'm living in South St. Louis where people, if you have long hair, people are like, hippie, go home. Yeah, you know, like, right. And David Bowie is like, well, look, I got this covered. <laughs> like, just, you know, just relax. Like, right? They're they're not going to win, you know. Yeah, it, it'll take time, but eventually they're not going to win. Mm. So, um, let's talk a little bit about how you got connected with with Wisconsin, since this is a Wisconsin <laughs> music podcast. Let's kind of talk about your, you know, your gigs that you've done here and the people you've met here like Gary and other people and just kind of give us the Wisconsin story your Wisconsin story right so after I got hooked up with David Bowie for a short period um and this is in what year this was 2013 okay I, I had kept in touch with Tony Visconti, who was producing Blackstar. Um, and at one point, at one point, I, you know, it's like I've been recording songs for many years, but I've never actually, like, you know, gone the, the whole step of like trusting myself enough to, you know, release my own albums until a few years ago. And so I felt confident enough to talk to Tony and ask him for, you know, like, recommendations on producing if he would do it he actually said that he would produce some of the stuff that i'm doing but he also mentioned he was really busy and so he recommended gary tannon and i got a hold of gary at that point i had 10 to 15 songs that were almost ready um and so gary liked the music (laughs) he was like sure i'll produce this so seven or eight months later we had a full record together. So when you're when Gary's producing it, are you guys like just talking on the phone back and forth, sending files, or how did that go? So on on the first record we did, which is called Time, 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 Time. With Time, 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 did you do get? Were you going out and touring for that album, or? Yeah, we we played in because um, that's well, that's when I lived in New York City. So um, you know, I was doing like the local clubs, like the Sidewalk Cafe, um, the Bar Eighty Four, the Electric Room, like. But yeah, let's take a listen to a song off of Time, 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 Time. Here is Time. Here is a 
riddle for you, solve it if you can. What creature do you know that has three hands? What makes a good wine? What makes women weep? What rules rulers? What thing never sleeps? Oh, 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 that is time. Time. The second hand went first. Then a minute thought he'd try. Pretty soon the hour hand had also gone by And it's quickly rolling, rolling And it quickly rolls and rolling And it quickly rolling, rolling And it quickly rolls and rolling And it quickly rolls and rolling And it's quickly rolling, rolling The second that you try to stretch it You won't catch it, I years from now when all things are done time and motion will still be young if you doubt me look in any mirror the person you just were has begun to disappear that is time and it's quickly rolling, rolling, and it's quickly rolling, rolling, and it's quickly rolling, rolling, yeah, and it's quickly rolling, rolling, and it's quickly rolling, rolling, and it's quickly rolling, rolling, hey, Mr. Riddle Man, speak if you know. All time go. I remember holding every day through my fingers, each slipped away. That was time. The second hand went first, the minute thought he'd try. Pretty soon the hour hand had also gone by The second hand's a lie, the minute hand's a thief The hour hand is watching all the day spinning weeks And it's quickly rolling, rolling, yeah, it's quickly rolling, rolling And it's quickly rolling, 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 rolling. Quickly rolling, rolling, quickly rolling, rolling Yeah, yeah, yeah.
would you call that a successful album in your right or did you want it to become more successful than it did oh no i, I think it's successful enough you know, okay. What do you consider successful enough? Like offending some people, getting critical praise, you know, like an honest critical praise, like, because I know there's things that aren't, you know, like, that, that could have been improved. You know, it, it's like when, when people actually listen to your song or your album and spend time to like thoughtfully think it through, like, I haven't got any, any, no one said, this sucks. You know? <laughs> yeah. And and most of us got a beat and like, you know, if people would just listen to it and, and they have, like, it's pretty good music, I think. You know, it holds up. Yeah. I so I I did <clears throat> the tracks here, all the vocals, some guitar parts, some bass parts, and then sent them to Gary, who also added like things that a, a producer would add, right? Because I've been listening to the same songs for like three months. Okay, and it's like I don't know what to do with this anymore, right? So that's where Gary came in, and he added like some keyboard parts and some strings and some other things. Um, also, like the recordings came back sounding like master. Like, you know, it just didn't sound like me in my living room anymore. You know, right. even though that's not what it was exactly. But, but yeah, like he, he got it. Like he was able to, you know, take out the good parts and emphasize those. And, you know, like, I, you know, it was a good job. So I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> like we can do this again. Cool. Um, and we have. A couple of times since right, and then so you guys are sending files back and forth, and you got that time, 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 time album done, and then what happened? Um, you know, we we I we sent it around. We got some great reviews. You know, got a bunch of hits on YouTube. Um, and I was like, okay, <laughs> let's do this again. Um, so then we did, did you- Beautiful Man from Mars. Which, which Gary and I, so that's a co-production. We, he mixed all the tracks and mastered them. Um, I had actually re- recorded the main bulk of the tracks in Seattle when I was there in 2016. Let's listen to the title track. Here is Beautiful Man from Mars. Before it's all gone, the beautiful man from the 
to stick on your lawn. The beautiful man from He knows 2,000 languages, talks with everyone. Don't take my word, ask the people who know studio were you using there in seattle my friend's studio it's called um and i can't remember birds i think it's birds nest Studios, but it's like a separate building that he has so he has like a whole pro tools rig like top-notch preamps you know like expensive right. microphones um but yeah that's my friend terry mg um so yeah and i came back with tracks from there and you know gary helped me to like glue it all together and I yeah, I and think there's some really good 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 songs on that record. And then you said you, you guys did Man from Mars and you and that turned out really well. Um and the albums I was listening to, um the Propaganda Man which comes Propaganda which Man, like, yeah. Yeah. And I was telling you last time we were talking, I said it reminded me a lot of um Frank Zappa. Not not all the songs, but a lot of the songs seemed like something that Frank Zappa would put together or you know, if he was still around. Right. And I, I don't agree with that. I, I don't think it's like Frank Zappa. I, I don't think Frank Zappa had, like, an overtly political view about anything, right? Like, I mean, even though he, he, he may have spoken of his political views, like, I don't see that in his music, you know? I wasn't really talking about, like, the lyrics, but I was thinking about as the music was put together, it seemed like... oh. Oh, that's a compliment then. It just like yeah. it just remind because when I listen to music, I don't listen to the lyrics right away. I listen to h- how the songs are put together and what what all the layers are there and everything. That's what I listen to first, and that's what the first thing that popped in my head was like, this reminds me of like Frank Zappa, you know, and his bands that he was in. Well, that 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 is a compliment. Like, thank you. Sure. I mean, when I was really little and before i was i was born my dad was playing frank zappa records while i was still in my mom's womb so been a part of my growing up ever since i existed i guess let's take a listen to propaganda man by jack span (laughs) 
also had i'm looking at your discography right now you also had back catalog is that another album that you did or is that right okay yeah that's it was my back catalog and like 2016 i think Mm -hmm. it was just like a bunch of songs that were like totally different in character and but they were so great that i was i felt compelled to like you know Put a release together. <laughs> right. But was I would recommend you, Tom. I, w- I would recommend Roly Coley Man. Okay. From that catalog. And I'll tell you the story if we have a second. Yeah, let's listen to Roly Poly Man first, and then you can tell us the story. Here is Roly Poly Man. so cruel we go picking on the roly-poly man picking on the roly-poly man when we saw him come we would warm up our tongues spitting insults like sailors on the strand only boys of 13 but our souls hard and mean following the roly-poly man 
So let's hear the story behind Roly Poly Man. So when I was a kid, like 10, uh, say 12 or 13, 12 or 13 years old, a bunch of us used to like, you know, like meet like in the woods, like by our house, smoke cigarettes, and, like, you know, whatever kids would do then. Right. And there was this guy that we used to see. The story that I heard is that he was an ex-Marine, but his name was Rod, and he would like walk at the same time every day, like from the tavern where he like had gotten really drunk to his home. And at some point, we like it was like the summer, right? So we were there every day, like oh, let's like eat pears and like throw rocks at cars and do whatever we do. (laughs) I think most kids have a story like that. Yeah. So anyway, so it's the story of Russ. So, like, Russ was walking by, and we were, like, throwing, like, pear bombs at him. You know, like, happy pears. I mean, like, we, we, like, tormented this guy, like, every time we could, like, all summer long. 
Was he like an older, like in his like? Yeah, yeah. So you know, so I was like twelve. He was probably mid forties, early fifties. But you know, a guy that lived in a roomy house had no maybe social security, maybe not. So we used to torment this guy. Like, and I remember one time, like my friend Gary, who was older than me, he was probably a year older, and he was like, "You need to fuck with Russ." And ran down there, you know, and like Russ, like held his fist back, like get away from me. And Gary's like, I'm not gonna move, right? Like, and you have <laughs> this is like this little, I, I understand that. This is like, yeah. Like, like, really. yeah. Um, but so eventually Russ like moved away and went on his, you know, job to the back to the to his apartment or whatever. And I was like, Gary, how could you do that? Like, aren't you scared of him? You know? And Gary's like, oh, that guy wouldn't hit a kid. He'd go to jail. Right. So, you know, like all those years ago, like the root of the Roly Poly Man is that story. You know, like only oh, okay. in the song, only in the song, the Roly Poly Man died. Oh, okay. So if you know anyone that, that that's sort of like really dark, check out the Roly Poly Man. Your story, it it has nothing to do with the same idea but it kind of reminds me of uh bruce hornsby's song that's based on to kill a mockingbird boo radley that's it the character boo radley oh yeah so because it's kind of like the same idea where the kids would go and mess with him but he the, the guy wouldn't mess back how did you get um the gigs that you did in wisconsin like you did Summerfest, and was there other places other venues that you did in wisconsin yeah so um so basically, Gary, like, stake his reputation on me getting, getting gigs at Summerfest. Right. Um, my band did two years in a row, um, and it was really and cool. So tell us, like, how did Summerfest treat you? Yeah, I mean, you can't go into that kind of situation expecting to be treated well. You know, like, I mean, I, ha- having, like, done this long enough, like, I don't expect to be treated well. I don't expect to be... I, I expect to be um, respected as, you know, like if I say I can't hear this or, you know, something feeding back. But other than that, I say, you know, it's like I was treated well enough, you know. Like, we got there in time. Like we showed our passes. We were escorted to our dressing room. You know, like we did our show. You also hear horror stories where bands go on there and the stage managers don't give a shit about you at whatsoever not saying they have to but they treat you like dirt and you know they're trying to kick you off like 10 minutes before you're done with your before your end time so they can get the next band up there ready to go and but it seems like were you a headliner or when you were doing Summerfest? no we weren't a headliner because no we weren't a headliner i'm not like a headliner or at least i wasn't then but um, we got there in time. <laughs> and so you did Summerfest two years in a row. Were there any other venues in Wisconsin that you did? Yeah, there's, there's a few, but can't really remember their names right now. Were they festivals? Uh, no. Okay. So were they like inside venues or outside venues? There was one inside venue that I played in like 1998 or 97. And it was in Madison. Okay. Right? Like, and I was playing with a band who's kind of a Grateful Dead cover band. Um, 
but also did some originals that I wrote and other people wrote. What was the name of the of the band? That band was Vitamin A, and you know the, the guitarist slash drummer drummer of that band went on to play with Dark Star Orchestra, right? Like okay, like Dead cover band in the world basically um and the bass player went on to play with the jerry garcia band but yeah i mean sorry i can't remember the name of the club that's fine but like you said it was in madison there's a lot of venues out in madison and then when you played at Summerfest, was that the the jack span band i take it yeah i think i was built with jack span the first time yeah maybe the jack span band the second time I know that this is kind of like a question that I ask most musicians or the musicians I have on here is like talking about the struggles of your local scene. Um, so do you feel like the local music scene, uh, let's talk pre-COVID, the, the local scene is suffering or suffocating? And do you feel that what's contributing to that suffocating of the local music scene? I'm pretty much like, I am not going to play anywhere that anyone has any chance of transmitting COVID. Right. Yeah. So like, like, so, well, you know, it's basically, it's upstate New York. So it's not like the greatest music scene in the world, although I personally think it is. But we had a bunch of gigs booked. And then COVID came and I was like, I'm not going to play inside anywhere. And then the summer came and, you know, we had a couple of gigs outdoors, you know, and people were offering us gigs. But they're indoors, and I'm just not going to play indoors. Yeah, I'm not doing it. I don't want to. I don't want to be responsible for. No, not at all. I don't want to be responsible. I don't want to, you know, be at a higher risk of contracting it for sure. Yeah, of course. And you know, it's like I I would rather eat beans every day, which is probably more healthy than the average American diet. But you know, you can buy a second bag of beans for like fifty bucks for a year. (laughs) You know. Let's talk about before you became a bigger name. Did you feel like the local scene that you were a part of, did you feel like it was being suffocated by in a certain way? And if so, how do you think it was being suffocated? And what do you think a possible solution to get more people to not suffocate the local music scene? Well, having spent like the late 90s, the entire 2000s in New York City, like I have to say that, you know... (laughs) It's like people don't get that this is a business, like a music business, right? Yeah. No matter how good you are, you know, like, no matter how pretty or handsome you are, like, you know, you, you have to get like the business behind you to make it happen, right? Like, but at the same time, there's, there's like hundreds of bands that have like really great music. You know, like, it, it, I think it, it's, it may, it may be a, a net loss for musicians, but I think people need to keep, like, creating stuff, you know, like, yeah. even though, even though you don't make money from it, you know, even though it hurts, like, and you're depressed and whatever, and you don't want to do it. I think, you know, musicians need to keep reaching out. The way you're seeing it is if a band or a musician is only seeing one side of the coin as the um, artistic venture and they're not looking at the business venture, that's what's stopping them from getting to the next level. Uh, well, wow. That is a complex question. Wow. Um, that question has so many levels. Um, so, so look, Ever since time immemorial, like, there's been a few winners and more losers, and 
many people in between who just have normal lives, you know, like, so yeah, like whoever, whoever has a great, like, take on how, how this is all happening, more power to them, you know, what's the finish? Work-life balance. How are you balancing the performance side with your personal side? And and I'm not just talking about right now. I'm just talking about your your whole career. Like, how have you tried to balance the two? Yeah. <laughs> I, I was such a dumbass in the earlier part of my career. Like, I didn't take care of myself. I was, like, full of deference to anyone who could possibly, like, help me in doing what I was doing. And I think I was really unhealthy. Um, but I've learned over the last few years, like, that's normal. Many people have the same experience. And, you know, congratulations, Jack, for moving on. And, yeah, it's, it's never too late. You know, like, if you're depressed, if you're anxious, it's never too late. You, at any instant, you can turn your life around. I'd just like to take a minute and direct your attention to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. Once again, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's available 24 hours in English and Spanish languages. Once again, their phone number is 800-273-8255. Their website is suicidepreventionlifeline.org. If you know of anyone that's dealing with any kind of depression or suicidal thoughts, or even yourself, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And back to the show with Jack Spann. So do you feel that now that you have all this experience behind you, that, that you have more control over your anxiety and other issues? Yes. And what do you think that, what's like the top three things have helped you realize how to take control of that? Daily exercise, meditation, and a good diet. And when you say good diet, what, like what kind of things are you doing to have a healthy diet? Most, mostly vegan, proper amount of fats. Like, and wherever you are, if you've been cooped up for months, like someplace else seems really yeah. exotic. Right. <laughs> what artists are you listening to right now that you feel deserve to be recognized but are not getting enough recognition? They're called. <laughs> I love this name. The Demon Rind. The Demon Rind. Obviously, I've never heard of them. The AT. Yeah. Well, like, you will soon. Oh, okay. Um, but their song is called Stupid Luck. The Demon Rind. Stupid luck. Is that R-I-N-D as in like a a melon rind? Yes, exactly. You you got it. (laughs) Well, I'll have to check that out. Well, everyone, that is the end of the podcast. I'd like to thank ZTF Studio at ztfstudio.com for sponsoring our shows. And thanks to Nate Wyckoff for our great podcast intro and outro music and to dean bundy for our introduction so i will see you guys next week we're gonna have jack spam play us out with his latest single jesus from new orleans
Jesus of New Orleans. They call him Water Legs. Jesus of New Orleans. First to get up when a first beat falls. And he has the bass drum, the guitar strum. And he's bouncing up, down, and off of the walls. And he's not no animal. He's not no criminal. But he looks like a man in blue jeans. And to his many fans,
Jesus, Jesus, Jesus of New Orleans. Satchmo, that's Domino, Ernie Kaido, Lee Romeo, he likes Jelly Roll, he likes Crib, Sinaloo, oh, he digs voodoo, got a hoodoo, likes gumbo, half Creole, he's gonna die on the bio, oh, 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 he loves James Booker, James Booker, he loves the way the licks roll around his purple head, with a Saint Rock, to Saint Rock, in a Saint Rock, 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 oh, and this church is everywhere. Jesus. <laughs> well, all right, all right, all right. He's a funky, funky man. He smells, but he sells. He wears patchouli for the mademoiselles. Everybody comes out. Everybody comes in.
Thank you.